us today, we have a very special guest. Carrie Purcell is with us. Broadway radio listeners might say, hey, Carrie's been on Broadway radio before, but she's on the other side of the mic this time. Is that Carrie, would you say the other side of the mic? Do you think that would be the right thing to say? I think so. So Carrie is the subject of the uh, of our discussion today because she has written a book from Afra Ben to Fun Home, a cultural history of feminist theater, which um, uh, was put out by Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N, and Littlefield, a uh, publishing company out of London. And uh, I read it, and I loved it, and Carrie, I thought that we would talk about it, especially because it, I think it'd be a great stocking stuffer, don't you? Well, now that you mention it, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> So what prompted you to write a, um, this is your first nonfiction book? It is. Correct? It's, my, it's my first book ever. Um, and I had kind of a unique uh, first book experience in that I was asked to write it rather than pitching it. Um, oh, okay. The way that came about was thanks to uh, another theater writer, Mark Adam Robinson, who has a great website called Mark Robinson Writes, mm-hmm. and who is a contributor at Playbill when I was the features editor there and Mark was a a great freelancer and I really enjoyed working with him and we stayed in touch over the years and he's written a couple of books for Roman and Littlefield and one of the editors there mentioned to him that they wanted to commission a book on women in theater and Mark thought of me and put me in touch with them so thank you Mark a very big thank you for this uh, opportunity that really changed my career. That's wonderful. So uh, if I remember correctly, you were writing it mostly during 2019. Is that correct? Uh, During 2018 and 2019. Okay. Uh, My deadline was in early 2019. So you probably remember more uh, frantic sleep deprived Facebook posts (laughs) in 2019 than you do 2018. (laughs) But I had about about 16 months to put together the project. So um, the reason that I'm wondering that is because there seems to be a lot of uh, uh, current references in it. Um, but perhaps uh, were they drop-ins at, at, at a later time um, after after the editing and finals were done and things like that? Uh, no, it was um, – I submitted the final manuscript in April of 2019 and was – I pretty much wrote the book in, in um, the order of the chapters. Mm-hmm. I didn't do a lot of jumping back and forth. Uh, I had my research organized chronologically. And as I got to the later chapters, I thought it was really important to offer um, some detail of the more recent seasons and some current points of view, Um, partly because there's been so much wonderful writing done about feminism feminism in theater already, and writing about shows that I had seen recently, I could offer a unique point of view. And also because I really wanted to make it clear that lack of parity, lack of equity, lack of diversity is still a problem. And that, you know, because we had fun home win the Tony, that doesn't mean that feminism has been achieved on Broadway. And to show that it's still a problem and that it still needs to be addressed and discussed and worked on. So I think that you made a very good case for that that statement all throughout the book. But let's talk about... Afra Ben, to start, 
when I first picked up the book, I thought that this was some sort of town in Russia. But, uh, <laughs> but tell us about, about it in a Chekhov play. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that at, at the end of Fiddler, they they go to Afra Ben, don't they? No. <laughs> That's off by a syllable for the music. <laughs> no, a couple so, syllables. <laughs> so tell us about Afra Ben. As she was, um, she was sixteenth um, century. Uh, yes, she was a poet and uh, an author of fiction, as well as of sixteen plays. And she was one of the first English women to earn money by writing. Uh, so it's no surprise, sadly, that she was considered, quote, unwomanly um, because she dared to put pen to paper and make money by sharing her thoughts. And one of the reasons that she did this was she was widowed. And her, you can, and her plays address marriage and the economics of marriage quite a bit. And that was one thing that was surprising to me when researching this book, actually. I thought I knew a lot about the confines of marriage um, over the hundreds and hundreds of years that women have been restricted by it. Um, But it was even worse than I thought, especially for widows and the sort of in-between place they were forced to hold in society because they weren't considered, quote, pure virginal young women and, you know, possible mothers, but they also couldn't be independently financially stable because of the laws that gave husbands their wife's assets when they were married. So I think that her work was so important in presenting that information through entertainment to audiences who might not find themselves thinking about such things if they hadn't gone out to the theater. You give us a historical perspective of theater. I mean, from the Greeks all the way through Shakespeare's time to uh, the current day uh, in America right now. And um, of course, in, in, in Greeks and in the Shakespearean times, uh, when Afra Ben was around in the 16th century, women didn't have any role in theater, really. Uh, did she have to write under a different name? Or how did she get her work done? A lot of women did have to write under different names. Um, she, she did not. I, at least that didn't come up when I was doing my research. A lot of women did choose to write under more ambiguous or typically male sounding names, which makes it challenging to really get the statistics regarding parody during that time, because some of some of the women who chose to do that or really were forced to do that because of society's restrictions did share the truth later, but many did not. And it just it's remarkable to think about the still the fact that the exact same words coming from what's perceived as a female compared to a male voice, how differently that resonates with the people hearing those words. I mean, even as recent as uh, the use of J.K. Rowling instead of Joanne Rowling. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, uh, I we we see it uh, still ingrained, and 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 a lot of people don't make the connections uh, that we we still have a society that. Um, uh, you, you talk about Ben Brantley and Jesse Green in the New York Times and the filling of that position. And mm-hmm. I, I guess that that's the part in my head that was more recent that I guess you didn't cover that Brantley had 
has resigned from the Times and what this may mean for the next person that they bring in to fill that role. Well, my, my book was published before Brantley's yes. resignation. I know. During this pandemic, this whole time thing is a blur <laughs> for me. I'm, I'm to, I was like, did Brantley resign four years ago or was it just four months ago? Or Definitely not four years so, ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I really, I, I fervently hope that the New York Times takes advantage of this opportunity to bring in a critic or several critics who can bring more diversity to that um, to that page. The New York Times critics hold so much power and there's just no excuse not to bring some different voices in and offer some different perspectives. There's no excuse. So uh, this brings up a good point that the uh, your view on on the cultural uh, his- history of feminist theater does not just include actors and writers and authors and directors it it covers the whole gamut of the entire theatrical community and you point out that as we've known for many many years most of our ticket buyers are women Mm -hmm. and most of the ticket buyers are women who buy tickets shows written by men for men by men and that's an interesting thing to me uh, do you th- feel like um, that this uh, cultural perspective has shifted much in the last couple of years? Not much. I think that there's been some shift, and I think that there's definitely a heightened awareness regarding the overall need for much more diversity within mainstream theater. And that, and by diversity, I don't mean strictly applying to gender. Diversity regarding race, uh, back economic background. Uh, gender identity, yes, sexual identity. There's there's a a lack of diversity that, in my opinion, is unforgivable. And what I'm hoping is that during the time that Broadway is shut down, that theater is shut down, that some of the work and research and activism that's already taken place will really be put into action, that there will be more diverse artistic boards deciding what plays are produced, that there will be more diverse critics offering different perspectives on the work that is produced, that there's, there are more diverse seasons, that there are more diverse teams backstage, and that when people go to the theater, they see theater that reflects the world and not just the world of people who can afford to buy Broadway tickets. I totally agree with you there. I mean, it, had we not have had this Broadway shutdown, we were scheduled to see a different take on 1776 coming out of the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, that We just heard an announcement in the last couple of weeks that that is definitely coming to Broadway whenever Broadway returns. Uh, And this 1776 is, uh, I think, the entire creative team. I'm not 100% sure about that, but everybody on stage, uh, nobody is identifying as a man, uh, which is very interesting because 1776 is a very (laughs) traditionally male-heavy show. Yeah. So uh, it it would be uh, it's going to be very interesting to see 
how this is received by Broadway audiences, uh, whether they be critics or just regular ticket buyers. Uh, I'm very excited because uh, the stuff that Diane Paulus does mm-hmm. always makes people think. Well, with 1776, um, I hear the name of that musical, and my first thought is the lyric, I'm obnoxious and disliked. I believe that's the lyric. <laughs> yeah. And th- that one lyric, thinking about a woman singing that that declaration compared to a man, brings up, demonstrates so much about women having opinions <laughs> or having opinions while female, which is a crime I'm guilty of. Um, Whereas a man can sing that he's obnoxious and disliked, but he's also a genius who helps form the American government. But a woman singing that can be perceived so differently. And that's something that I or pretty much any professional female or female identifying person that I know has experienced when sitting at a table during a meeting at the office Hmm. or trying to make sure that their suggestion gets heard during a Zoom call. So Hmm. I'm, I'm also excited about this. Diane Paulus is such an inventive director, and I think that's really exciting. Uh, and Diane Paulus appears uh, throughout your book. She um, does. She does, uh, as, do, as do many, many uh, women in theater, from Jennifer Ashley Tepper to Diane mm-hmm. Paulus to uh, Wendy Wasserstein. Uh, yeah. So this is not just a historical perspective from the 1600s, you've really uh, done a lot of work about current Broadway and uh, worldwide theatrical uh, people. Who, who else are some of the folks that you, uh, were, you've written about in the book? Uh, Marcia Norman. I, I had a long interview with her, which was fantastic. Uh, Emily Mann was very generous with her time and sharing her thoughts and also encouraging me as I catapulted towards my deadline. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I write a great deal about Paula Vogel's work, um, w- especially regarding the Broadway run of Indecent and how its closing had been announced and then the production was extended. Paula Vogel also has said one of my favorite things I've ever heard in an interview to me when she thoughtfully declared that it is a wonderful thing in life to be the mad aunt who sweeps in and takes the children to the theater. <laughs> As I was telling her how... Um, my niece, who at the time was much younger than she is now, had learned to sing Let It Go from Frozen in English and Spanish at age three. <laughs> um, Lynn Nottage's work, of course, I couldn't write a book about women in theater without looking at her incredible repertoire. Denai Guerrera and Eclipsed making it to Broadway. Um, quite a bit on Wendy Wasserstein, um, personally and professionally. Her work is very, very special to me. Uh, I could go on and on, but that would be the uh, the entire podcast. <laughs> Let's just say that um, one of the hardest things about writing this book was having to cut out sections in order to meet the word limit that I've been given. There's so much amazing work out there, and thankfully so many other books about this subject written by by diverse authors that everyone should read all of them. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of your titles that you mentioned here is Fun Home. Uh, on the in the title of your book, mm-hmm. talk about the Bechtel test for those who don't know what the Bechtel test is. So the Bechtel test was created sort of by accident by the cartoonist Alison Bechtel, who drew a comic strip titled "Dykes to Watch Out For," in which she depicts two two women um, talking about going to a movie. 
one of them says to the other, I have this rule and I'm reading from the, from the comic strip quoting it. I only go to a movie if it satisfies three basic requirements. One, it has to have at least two women in it who two talk to each other about three, something besides a man. And then there's a panel where these two people are walking in silence. And um, the other one said, the other person says pretty strict, but a good idea. It's, it's shown that they, they don't go to a movie that night. (laughs) (laughs) Alison Bechtel, without even meaning to, um, established this requirement that so many movies do not meet. So many forms of entertainment do not meet. And I remember leaving a lunch one day with a fellow theater journalist and she and I had been talking about dating. And I jokingly said, did we pass the Bechtel test today? (laughs) And we, we did because we talked about plenty of other things, but it's kind of a shorthand for examining how hopefully inspiring thought about how a work of entertainment portrays women or female identifying characters, especially with regards to heterosexual romance. It's really hard to apply the Bechtel test and and pass for many (laughs) of our, (laughs) many of our shows these days. Well, I think it's worth noting though, that a lot of plays do pass the Bechtel test, but those aren't plays that are being done on Broadway or at Uh, very high profile off Broadway theaters. There's a ton of work out there Mm -hmm. that, exceeds, meets and exceeds those requirements, but it doesn't get the same mainstream notice that a revival of an old chestnut play, a parlor drama about marriage would. So you had to do a lot of research in order to write, I did. This, book, <laughs> write this book. Did, did anything really uh, shock you, surprise you? Yes. Um, there were two things that really resonated with me. One Um, Actually, I remember writing something on social media about it maybe a year before I got the book deal when I declared that I had seen way too many musicals lately in which uh, men stood around and sang about women's virginity. I think what inspired that post was seeing um, Joan of Arc into the fire and Miss Saigon during the 2017 season. And when doing this research, especially in the the older plays, so much has been written about whether or not women are virgins (laughs) and whether that makes them um, quote suitable for marriage or not. And I just found that it it didn't surprise me because I've been doing my research my whole life about women's issues and feminism and equality, but reading one play after another or reading about one play after another, just about whether or not a woman had had sex before marriage really inspired a lot of thought about current societal standards for women and sexuality and sexual health. And of course, reproductive justice, because I was researching and writing this book during uh, the Trump administration and with a Republican controlled uh, Senate. So I, I think it's important to keep that in mind, how sexual freedom and reproductive justice is portrayed in entertainment, whether, whether um, overtly or in more subtle or passive aggressive ways. And the second thing that really, again, didn't necessarily surprise me, but resonated strongly was the the different standards of success held to female and male artists. It's frequently Mm. said that women's stories don't sell or people won't buy tickets to see a woman's story when statistically it's been proven that plays by women and about women win more Pulitzer Prizes (laughs) and on average, sell a lot more tickets than plays written by men. Thinking about recent seasons, 
I was thinking about David Mamet and the play China Doll, and oh. which was pretty notorious um, for being unsuccessful on Broadway. It was crit- poorly received critically. Uh, message boards were filled with stories of people walking out at intermission. Um, its opening was pushed back. And then in 2017, he had a new play. David Mamet had a new play at the Atlantic Theater Company. So thinking about that made it glaringly obvious how very often male artists are permitted to, to quote, fail or, or I guess just not succeed commercially or critically, and they get more and more chances. But what I commonly ask myself and other people is, would you say that about, about a woman? Or, would, or if they're making disparaging comments about a woman or a work by a woman, women, would you say that about a man? And I have a very strong feeling that if a play authored by a woman had its opening pushed back by several weeks, was inspiring a lot of talk about difficulties with the production, was critically lambasted and, and closed. I mean, it was a limited run, but still, I don't think that she would have a new play up in the same town a few months later. So I think it's very important to to consider our standards of success and if those standards are tied to the artist's um, gender identity or not. If I were to say to you, who were the top five most produced playwrights in 2019 and 2020, would you believe that three out of five are women? I would believe that because you're not talking about strictly Broadway. Not Broadway, exactly. Lauren Gunderson, who's mm-hmm. never had a New York production of anything. No, I think she has. I think I saw a play by her at 59 East 59. Lauren Gunderson had the play I and You at 59 East 59th in early 2016. But producing on Broadway is a big risk, as anyone who's Mm -hmm. seen Mel Brooks's movie musical and movie musical. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I think it's important to keep in mind that people who aren't white men are worth the risk, that that they have rich, vibrant, important, crucial stories to tell and they should be told, and they should be told to a big audience of people that we need to stop programming and hiring and supporting people who look like us. Because like hires like, I've seen that in every office I've worked. And we need to take risks, and then we need to make that the norm, that producing and supporting a diverse group of people is the norm, and that it's not a risk, it's just our natural instinct. That's what needs to happen. There needs to stop being the person of color. There needs to stop being the play by the person of color. There needs to stop being the play by the woman, one per season. And there needs to be a roster and a lineup that is diverse and that that's not unique, that that's the norm. So you have a chapter. (laughs) The title kills me. Winning awards for doing a man's job. Uh, (laughs) And the whole uh, award season craziness that hits us every year. Uh, well, except for this year, but yeah. that, that's a whole separate podcast. So tell us about your take on the Tony Awards. Well, I, I want to point out that doing a man's job was in quotes. Uh, that's not something that I said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and. That was a statement um, that was intended as praise for Antoinette Perry, for whom the Tony Awards are named. And it was 
very surprising to me to learn that a lot of people thought the Tony Awards were named after a man. Mm. Um, and I love the Tony Awards. They've attending the Tony Awards as a journalist have has frequently been one of the best nights of the year for me. And that's where you and I met. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm, I'm going to share this story, James. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> when back in 2011, we were in the press room and someone asked if best actress had been announced. And it was, we were all pretty sure Sutton Foster was going to win for starring in anything goes. And I said, kind of a deadpan. No, but I'm sure Sutton will be here soon. And then you and I had never spoken before, but you looked up from your laptop and I asked me the fact that I was here before Sutton doesn't violate my restraining order, does it? (laughs) And nine years later, we're still friends. (laughs) See that? (laughs) But It's important to note. I think that the Tony awards are only for Broadway. And as I've said a few times (laughs) in this book and on this podcast and in pretty much every happy hour conversation I've had, Broadway's too male and too white. And Broadway's often considered the measure of success for a show, uh, not only because it, it's Broadway and it's got that glamour just in its name, but because when a show is on Broadway, its profile raises and then it will be done more frequently at regional theaters um, worldwide. So even if some shows don't necessarily, even if some producers don't set out to necessarily get a show to Broadway, being on Broadway does help the profile of a show and the success of the playwright. So Broadway needs to be more diverse. And there are a lot of activist groups out there that are working very hard to try to make this happen. And it's important that we support them and that we all be very conscious about what artists and what shows we choose to support and go see when theater reopens, which can't happen soon enough because to quote Antoinette Perry, she was asked, why do you devote so much of your money and time to such thankless activities? And her answer was thankless. They're anything but that. I'm just a fool for the theater. And I think James, you and I can both uh, identify as that as can the listeners of this podcast. Carrie, what have you been doing since the, you know, the book came out and then uh, the book came out and then everybody went into a a big shutdown. So Mm -hmm. um, what have you been doing with yourself, uh, you know, to keep yourself sane? Um, trying to get people to buy it. (laughs) Okay. Um, Have you thought about another book? Oh, I'm already working on it. Great. Um, yeah, I'm working on a a fiction. I'm working on on a work of fiction and have been very fortunate to have the time and the resources to work on it. Um, I'm not really going to say much about the plot right now because knowing me and how much I revise, it could be something completely (laughs) different if slash when I finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been doing that. I've been working on promoting this book and working my day job as a uh, pharmaceutical advertising editor. And honestly, I've been watching Netflix. When I was seeing five shows a week, I never saw any of the TV shows mm. that people talked about. So uh, I'm all caught up on The Crown. I've watched all four seasons of that. Okay. Um, What's this, uh, The Queen's Gambit? I haven't made it to that yet. I, um, I, I've heard it's great, but I, I need to be in the right mood to, to watch a show about chess, um, mm-hmm. especially keeping myself from 
singing the musical score in my head while watching this it. Is true. But yeah. I'll, I'll get to the Queen's Gambit. Um, I had actually never seen any episodes of Star Trek, but a friend of mine put together a curated <gasps> list of the best of uh-huh. the first three seasons. So I've been uh, making my way through that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow I'd, I'd never seen Star Trek. <laughs> And I've been reading quite a bit and um, missing theater, taking advantage of seeing some of the professional recordings that people have been sharing online um, and, and, you know, trying to look out for, look out for my friends and loved ones and see if they need anything. Did you get a chance to see the prom yet? Oh, I guess the yeah, I guess the prom's not out yet. The prom is coming to Netflix on December 11th. Yes, so, I haven't yeah. seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to watching it. I really <laughs> like that musical. Well, I want to remind our listeners that from Alfred Ben to Fun Home, a cultural history of feminist theater can be found at lots of different uh, bookstore outlets. We'll have links to that in the show notes. We'll have. Uh, links to um, the publisher's website which is Roman and Littlefield and um, and hopefully please uh, support Carrie and uh, theater journalism and Carrie we're so excited and congratulations for you on your uh, book release thank you 